evidence and answers. If you've been listening to Evidence and Answers, you are familiar with the classic arguments for the existence of God, such as the argument from first cause, the design and moral argument. However, there are more compelling arguments for the existence of God that you may not be as familiar with. These include the argument from beauty, consciousness, and the anthropological argument. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Doug Groteis, will be discussing lines of evidence for the existence of God. Now with part one, here's our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, we're talking Christian apologetics today, and with us is Dr. Doug Groteis, professor of philosophy and apologetics at Denver Seminary. And we're talking about his book today, Christian Apologetics, a Comprehensive Case for the Christian Faith. And this is a textbook now used by many Christian schools and universities across the country. It's a very comprehensive book covering the major facets of Christian apologetics. So, Doug, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Yes, and one of the commonalities we found out is that Doug also worked for Probe Ministries, a ministry that I served with for about 20 years. And Doug, you were in Seattle at that time, is that right? Yes, we had a study center in Seattle that was very much involved with the University of Washington there. I was there from, I guess, uh, 86 to 89. Yeah, those are very good years. Did a lot of apologetics related to the New Age movement back then, because my two books on the New Age movement had recently come out. Yes. And there's a lot of New Age activity at that time in that area. That's right. That's when uh, I was introduced to Doug Groteis. Kirby gave me a couple of your books and said, hey, write a radio show on the New Age. Here are a couple of good books for you. So Great. That's yeah. why I got introduced to you there. So 20 years later, now I finally get to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more than 20 years, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, Doug, you have been involved in apologetics for quite a long time. And since this is your first time on Evidence and Answers, tell us, a little bit about yourself. I mean, how did you come to Christ, and how did you get into this arena of Christian apologetics? Yes, I became a Christian almost exactly 46 years ago after my first year in college. I had studied atheism, Western philosophy like Nietzsche and Freud and Marx and so on, but I was also interested in Eastern mysticism, like Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. But uh, the Lord had other plans for me, and I began to read Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, which really helped me to see my need for Christ. So after that first year in college, I went back home at the time, Anchorage, Alaska, and quite a few of my friends had converted to Christianity during the year I was at college. So I spent a lot of time with them and asked them questions and started reading the Bible and so on. And God made it pretty clear to me that I was at a fork in the road and the fork I needed to take was uh, following Jesus as Lord. But the first few months I was a Christian was hard because I didn't know how to think as a Christian. I wasn't sure that my faith, although I knew it was real, really had a rational foundation for it. But shortly after that, I began to read quite a bit, especially Francis Schaeffer, who helped me tremendously. Uh, he showed me that Christianity was not only true and meaningful, but 
rational and we didn't have to fear anything in the world of ideas. So I eventually uh, went on to get a degree in philosophy and worked in campus ministry for a number of years. And in 93, got a PhD in philosophy and I've been teaching at Denver Seminary ever since. And I taught apologetics every year. And one of my mentors, Gordon Lewis, said, if you teach a class for 10 years, you should be able to write a textbook on it. So I took that as a hint and uh, started working on my book, Christian Apologetics. The first edition came out in 2011. And as I taught it over the years, I realized that even though it was already big, it was 750 pages, I had left out a few things. So I kept thinking about that. And then I contacted my publisher, University, and the book had done well enough that they thought they could produce a second edition. So that's come out about, I guess, about two and a half months ago now. Yes, and this is a comprehensive book, but you also have some unique chapters in here that I think we're going to talk about. But first, tell us, what is the biblical basis for apologetics? You know, a lot of people say Christianity is really about faith. Hebrews, you know, believing what is not seen. What is the biblical basis for apologetics? Right, I have a whole chapter on that, because in some cases you have to make an apologetic for apologetics because of the reasons <laughs> you mentioned. Some people think that faith and reason are opposites, that if you believe something on faith, then you could have no reason or no evidence for it. But actually, Scripture contrasts faith with sight. It doesn't contrast faith with reason or faith with evidence. So we walk by faith, not by sight, but there are reasons to have faith. And First Peter 3 tells us to be ready to give an answer, to give the reason for the hope that is within us when people ask us about our beliefs and how we can continue to trust Christ in the midst of difficulties and suffering, as was the case in, during the time that Peter was writing First Peter. So one thing I like to do is go to Jesus himself. Jesus, of course, was God in the flesh, and he had authority, and he could predict the future and so on. But he also reasoned with people. He was always engaged in various discussions about the Sabbath or the afterlife or ethics or something like that. And quite often, Jesus would reason with people uh, about things like the relationship of a Jew to Caesar at that time. You see that in Matthew 22, or whether or not there's marriage in the afterlife. You see that in Matthew 22 also. So Jesus was, in a way, uh, an apologist and a philosopher himself. And you see that also, certainly in the book of Acts, where Peter and Paul and others give reasons for why they believe. One of the great apologetic sermons is Acts 17, particularly verses 16 through 34, where Paul is dealing with the Greek philosophers of the day. And he makes a very compelling case for why their beliefs are wrong and why Christianity is a much better alternative to their own beliefs. So I can say that if you want to talk about examples, we have the example of Jesus, the example of Paul, and many others. And then we have that classic text in First Peter 3.15 about giving a reason for the hope that is within us, uh, an answer to everyone who asks us why we believe. So I think apologetics is very much grounded in Scripture. And some people will say, well, you have to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, not giving arguments. Right. You can't reason. You can't argue yeah. anyone into the kingdom. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people that will say that arguments and apologetics really help them come to belief. People like C.S. Lewis or Lee Strobel or uh, someone uh, like Nabil Qureshi, who sadly died at a young age, but he was a Muslim. 
And his interaction with apologists like Michael Lacona and Gary Habermas and others led him to Christ. So it happens. Uh, People do come to Christ through apologetics, and there's no reason to make a dichotomy between the work of the Holy Spirit and good arguments, because uh, God is the the smartest being in the universe, So, uh, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit can get through to people in any way he wants, dreams, visions, miracles, and also the Holy Spirit can use good arguments to help win people to Christ. It, it happens all the time. Right, and you know, you talked a lot in your book about the character of the apologist as well. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. good apologetics arguments don't make a dent because of the way it's been presented. Tell us about that. You make a good point in your book on that. Right. I think it's easy for someone who develops some skills in apologetics to become arrogant because you get good arguments and you can defeat arguments against Christianity and you can become really cocky or arrogant about that. And that's not fitting someone who follows Christ because the leading Christian virtue is humility, not pride. Pride, in fact, is the leading sin and humility is the leading or core virtue. So Christians who want to defend their faith, and that should be everyone, need to work at it. We need to get the best arguments we can. We need to know the scripture and how to defend the scripture and how to challenge unbelieving worldviews like atheism or pantheism or whatever it is. But we need to be winsome. So that verse I mentioned earlier, 1 Peter 3.15, also says that we should do this with gentleness and respect, that we should recognize Christ as Lord, have a reason, and then present that reason with gentleness and respect. Because you can give a very logically forceful argument but do it in such a way that you just repel people. So the answer is not to be wimpy and to uh, just share your testimony and then that's it, and you don't want to be aggressive. I think we need to be forceful in defending what we believe, but not arrogant about it, not manipulative, not mean-spirited about it. So we really need to pray before, during, and after. We need to pray for opportunities to do apologetics, to win people to Christ, to build up believers who are doubting, And we need to pray that we will have the right kind of an answer, a word in season, to use a phrase from the book of Proverbs. I do spend some time on that. There are a lot of very good apologetics books out there, but sometimes they don't talk about those issues, like the character of the apologist or the fact that you're really doing spiritual warfare when you're trying to come against unbelief. You're dealing with people who are deceived by the devil, ultimately. So they are not our enemy, but uh, the devil and his demons are our enemies. So we need to be prayed up and be wise and have faith to deal with those kind of situations. Yes, and you also talk about the limits of apologetics. I mean, it's not a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. It doesn't answer all the questions. Uh, uh, What are some of the limits of apologetics? Right. Well, the biggest limit is that the apologist is a sinner. So you may have the best arguments, but you might lapse into being self-righteous. You might have very good arguments and not present them because you're timid. Maybe there's an issue you haven't studied sufficiently, so you've been lazy. But even if you give an impeccable argument and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't guarantee someone will recognize it as a good argument or that they will become a Christian. That's between God and the person you're talking with. Ultimately, you want to be used by the Lord in these situations. And of course, you want people to come to Christ, absolutely. But uh, there's no formula where if you give this argument or if you say these several things, then uh, 95% of the people you talk to will become a Christian. It doesn't work like that. And even though, let's say, I've been studying apologetics now for 40, 46 years, and I wrote a gigantic textbook on it, 
I don't know everything. Uh, my area is more philosophical apologetics, and I do biblical apologetics, too, in terms of how does this scripture relate to that scripture, and what about this and that in the Old Testament? I can handle some of those things, but that's not my specialty. So, in fact, in my book, I have Dr. Richard Hess writing the chapter on some issues of apologetics in the Old Testament. So if you want to really go head-to-head on some of the issues like with the Old Testament culture and the Hebrew and everything, well, you know, I, I can't do that, but I can point to people who can. So there are limits. It's not a magic bullet, a silver bullet, but it certainly does help. Yes, and just because the person doesn't come to faith in Christ doesn't mean apologetics or your discussion was fruitless. You know, right. often often you're there as what you call pre-evangelism, you know, killing mm-hmm. the hard soil, breaking that right. hard soil so that the next person who comes to present the gospel, this person is a little bit more open. Wouldn't you say that's a big part of mm-hmm. apologetics? Oh, certainly. Francis Schaeffer used that phrase pre-evangelism, because apologetics should always be geared towards winning someone to Christ or building up someone who is a Christian who has doubts and struggles. I do a lot of academic work in my book. It's got, I don't know how many footnotes, I haven't counted them, probably about 2,000. But the point is not to impress people academically. You have to do the research and documentation and strong arguments and considering counter-arguments and all that. But The purpose is ultimately to glorify God by winning people to Christ and building up other Christians. That's the whole point of it. And sadly, I think some apologists spend too much time talking to other apologists about apologetics, right? We need to actually do it. So I tell my students, if I just teach apologetics, then I'm not doing enough. So I try to get out into secular settings and give lectures and try to answer questions and and talk about the truth of the faith with my non-Christian friends and so on. Yes, you know, and you begin uh, apologetics with a biblical worldview or developing a Christian worldview. And a recent Mm -hmm. survey by the Cultural Research Center revealed that only 9% of professing Christians even have a biblical worldview, and that really only 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. Why do you feel are the reasons for such low percentages? Well, I suppose they're are quite a few of them. Part of it is that people don't take learning seriously enough. They don't take knowing the Bible and knowing basic doctrine and apologetics seriously enough. So they might be spending their time, too much time, on entertainment or recreation and not really viewing Christianity as a knowledge tradition. And I get that phrase from my friend J.P. Moreland. He really emphasizes it, as did Dallas Willard. We're not just talking about a social club or we have a few beliefs and then we don't worry about developing our faith. We're part of a knowledge tradition. In fact, we have a collection of 66 books with different genres and different authors uh, dealing with God, humanity, the future, ethics. And there's a lot there to learn about. And we have this wonderful tradition of biblical studies and theology and apologetics. And uh, it's fascinating. So I think Sometimes people are too easily satisfied. They don't want to go deeper, or maybe the sermons they hear are not very deep, or the books they read are just too, if they read at all, <laughs> are uh, you know just too superficial or, or silly. Now, it's easy for me to say that because I'm an academic who has plenty of time to read and study and write, but uh, nevertheless, we really need to, to study to show ourselves approved. We need to know what we believe and why to be the kind of witnesses that we need to be. 
And if we don't, we will take on the beliefs and the patterns of action out in the world. And First John says, uh, don't love the world, love the Lord. So if you love the world, you're going to be missing out on the knowledge of God. And that's not something we should do. Yes. Now, you give several of the classical arguments for the existence of God, and we've got several shows on that. I wanted to hit some of the arguments that we mm-hmm. have not covered on this show. And you give, uh, one of the arguments you give is the argument of the existence of God from beauty. Mm-hmm. Explain that one to us. Yeah. Well, that's a new chapter. I didn't discuss it in the first edition of the book, but I realized that this argument can be very compelling because most people have a sense of awe or reverence in front of something when they behold something really beautiful. It can cause people to be quiet, to reflect. And I give an example of the book of when I was in graduate school. A friend of mine and I, another graduate student, were looking at a beautiful sunset. And he said, when I see something like this, I feel so grateful. And I said, who are you grateful to? And there was a long pause. And that, that led to some really worthwhile spiritual discussions. Because what he was seeing was not created by any human being. It was there in nature. So the issue really is, does nature have an author? Or is nature all there is? Which is what atheism teaches, or naturalism, to put it positively. So my argument is that there are elements of nature that humans had nothing to do with that are beautiful, that are more than just physical spatial properties. There's something that really grabs our attention, whether it's a sunrise or a sunset or a beautiful fish or bird or something like that. And when you look at that, you can either say, well, there is no objective beauty. It's just a response that I have in my nerve endings. But I think if you think about it more, you realize that something deeply beautiful really gets your attention and it produces a sense of wonder or a sense of awe. And then, if you want to be more philosophical about it, which I think you should be, you say, well, why is this here? Does it have an author? Does it have an explanation? Or is it just a random fact uh, that made me feel happy in the moment? And my argument is that there are a lot of examples of this kind of beauty. And the best explanation for this beauty is that there is really an author, or if you might, you might want to say an artist. It's a better way to put it, an artist behind this. Of course, there's more to say than that, but If you really behold something objectively beautiful, and let's just say it's in nature right now, not something from culture, like a piece of music or a painting, although you could take that too, you have to say, what worldview best explains what I am seeing? And the naturalist doesn't have as an explanation the possibility of a divine artist. I mean, the only way they can explain beauty in living things is on the basis of Darwinism, and that's an inadequate explanation because Darwinism just has to do with reproductive success. It has nothing to do with uh, objective beauty. And moreover, you go outside of life, go to the universe as a whole. My first wife, Rebecca, who's now with the Lord, did an interview with someone who had been an atheist, a Russian atheist physicist. And he was looking at, he was drawing up some equations for the universe to try to explain some features of the universe. And they were so beautiful, and they were not, of course, created by any human being. He was trying to figure them out mathematically. They were so beautiful, he came to the conclusion that there must be an artist behind uh, the beauty of the universe. And a short time after that, this man was able to meet a Christian who helped lead him him to the uh, lead him to the Lord. So it's not like the beauty of the universe says 
repent of your sins and come to Christ, but it does give people a sense that they are creatures, that they're looking at something majestic beyond themselves. And in fact, the best explanation for this is not just time and space and chance, but really a personal artist behind all of it. So I give that example in the book as well, that uh, we know this already because Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth is his handiwork. So uh, this is just another way of explaining that, this argument from beauty. Doug, don't we also have to ask ourselves, I mean, where does our concept or idea of beauty come from? Well, I think so, because human beings recognize beauty. We may not agree on what is beautiful, but if there is something that is objectively beautiful, it's beyond just our subjective preferences, then it makes sense to ask where it came from or what is the explanation for it. Now, the argument from beauty has two steps. The first step is there is such a thing as objective beauty. It's not merely in the eye of the beholder. And if it is something that exists objectively that is out there in the world, then how do we account for it? So it's similar in structure to the moral argument for God, which says there is such a thing as objective right and wrong, good and evil. And if so, how do we explain it or how do we account for it? Now, some people are just doggedly relativists on beauty. They'll say it's nothing but a matter of personal taste, and personal taste is arbitrary, and you can't adjudicate that kind of thing. Now, I think they're wrong, but apologetics has a very large palette to draw from. So you could say, all right, I can't convince you that beauty is objective, but let's talk about other evidence for God. Let's talk about the origin of the universe or the design of the universe for life, or let's talk about where our moral sensibilities come from. Uh, Or if you already believe in God, then we don't have to worry about that. Let's talk about the reliability of the New Testament, uh, the claims of Jesus, the credentials of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. So what I'm trying to say here is that apologetics should be very flexible. And if someone is not convinced by one particular argument, even if it's a good argument, you can switch to another argument, hoping to convince the person. It's not that you're trying to manipulate them. You're not saying... Well, I'll just do anything to get them to believe in God, even though I have to trick them. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that there are so many good reasons to believe in God and believe in Christ as Lord, that if someone rejects a valid argument, uh, we've got other arguments that we can use, other approaches we can use with them. Yes. Now, another one that has been receiving a lot of attention recently is the argument from consciousness and cognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, explain that one to us. Right. Well, what I do in the book is I really draw from C.S. Lewis and Alvin Plantinga, and this argument's a little bit more complicated, but you're taking something that everyone has to recognize, and that is that we have an awareness of ourselves and of other things outside of ourselves. You could call that consciousness. So what is consciousness? Well, it's not the same as any material state. You can't reduce your perception of red or the taste of honey to anything merely chemical, merely material. There's the subjective element of it. And the subjective cannot be ultimately explained merely by what's going on in your brain or what's going on in some other part of your body. So this is an argument that there is something distinct from the body called the mind, an immaterial substance. And if the universe contains an immaterial substance, our consciousness, then we have to try to explain how it got here. And the theistic explanation is far better than 
any kind of materialistic explanation, because if you're a theist, you believe that God is the infinite personal spirit, and that he's created human beings in his image and likeness, and they have a finite personal spirit attached to their bodies. So you explain consciousness on the basis of the ultimate being who himself has consciousness and who can create consciousness in his creatures along with giving them a body. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So please share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 o